Time for our second hour roundtable on America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And good evening and welcome back to America Can We Talk. To my uh, fastest two hours of my week every week doing this show. I would love to do this show two hours a day. I could find many, <laughs> plenty to talk about, but... Welcome back to America Can We Talk. I want to encourage you, our listeners, to go to our YouTube channel periodically. America Can We Talk has a really cool YouTube channel, well-organized. Find You can find our interviews. You can find the first fives, uh, which is always the first segment of the show. You can find our Right View Roundtable. We just have it really well-organized. I'd love to have you visit our YouTube channel and subscribe to it. Okay, so this is the top of the second hour. I have no roundtable here tonight, so I'm going to do our cruise through the news, which uh, these are stories that talk more about how they only more time. But I think they're all kind of good little uh, vignettes or little pictures of things, of just aspects of America. Uh, first, we report in the past that the Republican National Committee is doing a much, much more successful job than the Democrat National Committee in raising money. We had another high, this or another high uh, point this time, rather rather call it low point, the Democrat National Committee has had its worst fundraising month last month that's had in a decade. Like they have not done so poorly raising money in 10 years. Their condition is getting worsened because they had to file with the FEC this past Wednesday and they are truly in dire straits. They raised just $4.4 million last month. That's the lowest, second lowest August fundraising for the party in, in years. They have less cash on hand at the end of the month than they did at the beginning, and they're spending outpaced fundraising by about 44000 But the worst part is their debt is growing so significantly. Their debt has increased from $3.4 million to $4.1 million, which so their debt is equal to a, about 60% of their cash on hand. And, folks, as I say all the time on the show, I am not here to cheer on Republicans versus Democrats. I'm here to cheer on America and the unique, exceptional, profound nature of the identity of America and how important it is for the world, for this generation, for generations to come, to value what America is, to stand up for what America is. And this the reporting on the DNC having such low donation level was talking about that maybe this is due to the fact that their um, chairman, that Tom Perez, is doing a miserable job uniting Democrats. I don't think that's the answer. I think you can explain the low donation levels to the fact that more Americans are finally awake to how divisive and, frankly, un-American Democrat policy positions are on issue after issue after issue after issue. The people of America are rejecting the Democrat Party's playbook. They're rejecting their identity politics, their hyphenated America politics. They're rejecting their just endless criticism of America and the American people and their endless effort to paint America as a country full of racism and full of hatred and full of evil and full of selfish people. They reject their socialist answers. People are still angry about Obamacare and can't get rid of it. And they know who gave us that. The American people are simply rejecting Democrat policies. And so, you know, Tom Perez is probably doing a really good job of conveying the Democrats' views on, on policy issues. And just it's not just policy issues. It's their, their paradigm, their worldview. 
and Americans don't like it. And this is a good thing because the notion of what Democrats propose as solutions is always bigger government, more power, more control of your life, as though that's somehow a virtue and Americans are sick of it. Okay, item number two in our cruise through the news. Um, there was a poll um, among young people, people in college, about how, what do you think about people coming to speak on your campus if you do not agree with them? Do you think violence is justified in order to prevent speakers you don't like from coming to your campus? And which should be the answer should be zero, should agree that violence is okay. But actually, it was 19% overall of the students responded, violence is an acceptable method to shut down a speaker. This was a poll of 1,500 college students. Moving along to Hillary Clinton news. Hillary Clinton, out there with her new book, you know, which is everything is everybody else's fault except for mine. You know, what happened couldn't be anything wrong with me. But she made some statements that are so offensive to women. I mean, shockingly offensive to women. She actually said in an MSNBC interview yesterday that women who support President Trump are publicly disrespecting themselves. She actually said that, that women who support President Trump are publicly disrespecting themselves. What she's saying is she can't understand why women would support a president who wants strong borders and a, a good, uh, strong refugee policy, who want a president like, who basically embraces conservative values. She's, she's saying women shouldn't get to think for themselves. I'm one of the Democrat elite leaders I tell women what they should think, and any woman who dares not to think what I think is publicly disrespecting herself. She's disrespectful. You know, we've got to go off to a break here in just a minute, so I want to tell you we have a speaker, a guest coming on again uh, in this uh, second hour. is Dr. Patrick Moore, and the quickest of background is this. Dr. Moore was one of the founders of Greenpeace, and you might wonder why he's coming on this show. He's now a huge advocate for CO2 level being helpful to our country. He's going to talk about hurricanes, CO2, climate change. Don't go away. Could you lose your career because of your faith? Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers and, if necessary, legal protection from First Liberty Institute. First Liberty is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America. In fact, First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. They've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to local schools. Visit FirstLiberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans in the workplace, public schools, your church, the military, and more. That's FirstLiberty.org. If you want hope for religious freedom and a free listing of your rights, go to FirstLiberty.org now. If there's one thing the conservative movement needs, it's a leader. And we have one, the Heritage Foundation. Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Heritage gets in the trenches on Capitol Hill. 
They promote principled solutions directly to lawmakers in Washington. And unlike politicians, they don't waver or compromise. But they're not a Washington institution. There are nearly a half million heritage members and supporters in America. And they're on a mission to grow that number and build the conservative base. You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates from Heritage Foundation on the fight for conservative solutions to America's challenges. Plus, you'll receive exclusive invitations to conservative events where you live. So join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org. America faces unprecedented threats to our national security. The Center for Security Policy, based in Washington, D.C., is a national leader focused on the organization, management, and direction of public policy coalitions to promote U.S. national security. The Center is a special forces in the war of ideas dedicated to identifying opportunities and challenges likely to affect American security and acting promptly to ensure that they are the subject of focused national examination and effective action. The Center enlists support from executive branch officials, key legislators, and other public policy organizations and brings these teams together to develop and shape policies that will keep America safe. Check out centerforsecuritypolicy.org for the latest news and developments brought to you by America's leading security experts. Becoming and remaining informed is one of the best ways every citizen can be a part of the mission to keep America safe. That's centerforsecuritypolicy.org. Attention Ronald Reagan fans, what is the one item most sought after by Americans who love the Gipper? It's Young America's Foundation's Reagan Ranch Calendar. Young America's Foundation is the leading youth outreach organization dedicated to ensuring that increasing numbers of young Americans understand and are inspired by the ideas of individual freedom, a strong national defense, free enterprise, and traditional values. New audiences of young people across the country are introduced to conservative ideas through Young America's Foundation's programs, including the Reagan Ranch Program. The Reagan Ranch calendar contains spectacular images of the Gipper enjoying his beautiful 688-acre ranch, the Western White House. For a limited time, the calendar is free. Even shipping is free. To receive your beautiful Reagan Ranch calendar from Young America's Foundation, call 800-USA-1776 and mention the phrase Reagan Gift. Again, the number is 1-800-USA-1776 and Reagan Gift is the code. Learn more about Young America's Foundation at www.yaf.org. That's yaf.org. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Debbie George Addis. As I mentioned before the break, we have joining us tonight Dr. Patrick Moore. And I did mean to mention, and I didn't get to say in my introduction, that he actually has a PhD in ecology from the University of British Columbia. He has a background with Greenpeace, which we'll hear about. And then we're going to understand his views about how healthy or not CO2 is for us. Good evening. Welcome, Dr. Thanks, Debbie. It's nice to be with you. Great to have you. Well, first of all, you know, you just got to love it on a conservative talk show to have anyone on who had an affiliation with Greenpeace. So I'd love to hear just a little bit if you could tell our listeners about, you know, kind of how you got involved in Greenpeace and why you moved away. Well, actually, Greenpeace was founded with very high ideals and a strong humanitarian orientation, which no one would even imagine now because they call people the enemies of the earth today. But back in 1970-71, at the height of the Cold War and the height of the Vietnam War, 
the height of the threat of all-out nuclear war, and the emerging consciousness of the environment, we put these two words together, green and peace. The green part is obvious. The peace part, though, had to do with preventing all-out nuclear war, and indeed for the first five years of our organization, from 1970 to 75, we campaigned to stop nuclear testing, and I was on the first voyage from Vancouver to the Aleutian Islands, mostly a bunch of Canadians, but one American professor from Alaska, all professionals of one sort, but we looked like hippies because it was a hippie era. And I was, I was doing my PhD in ecology at the time at the University of BC and became radicalized by the fact that we were living in that era of fear and threat. And uh, I joined uh, the crew and went, and, on, and went on a protest. I was from the science side. Um, most of them were more from the political activist, social activist side, but uh, there were some very good people involved who cared a lot about the future of human civilization and the environment together. That was the whole idea, that it was combining the long-standing history of uh, peaceful protest and social action with the idea of stopping nuclear war and the destruction of the environment that it would cause, as well as the destruction of civilization. But as time went on, we moved on to other issues, save the whales, a very legitimate issue that needed to be done, uh, and then on to the toxic waste issue. And that, of course, really needed to be done, especially in Europe and Asia, where they didn't have the equivalent of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act that the United States and Canada have, and other parts too, South America. There was a lot of countries that needed to clean up their pollution. And so we worked on that for a long time. But eventually, uh, we, we sort of won over everybody to the more reasonable things we were saying should be done. And it just seemed that as everybody accepted us, the, a lot of people in the group had to figure out ways so that they could still be against most of society. And so it drifted to the left, then was basically hijacked by the political left, who were smarter at politics than a bunch of hippie ecologists. And uh, that's, that's what happened. And suddenly, instead of basing our campaigns on science, we were basing our camp. I wasn't, I was there no longer, but Greenpeace was began to base its campaigns on misinformation and sensationalism and fear of everything. Uh, and today, uh, there isn't a single campaign that Greenpeace is conducting that I agree with, although I still agree with everything we worked on back in those days, except I think we made a mistake on nuclear energy. We lumped nuclear energy yep. in with nuclear weapons instead of lumping it in with nuclear medicine as a beneficial use of nuclear technology, and that has really hurt development of nuclear in the West. China is now in the process of doubling its nuclear power, and sometime later, uh, towards the middle of this century, will surpass the United States in nuclear energy capacity. Okay, that is so interesting, because, you know, I was thinking I would actually ask you to come on tonight, because I want to talk about Hurricane Irma and CO2 and climate change, and, you know, I... I think that the issue around uh, supposed climate change has become so politicized and it really ignores the fact that most people, you know, you uh, you want to be a responsible citizen. You are certainly aware of the radical nature of Greenpeace and, frankly, many of the climate change advocates who who seem to have an extreme agenda that's more related to wealth redistribution and you know, just kind of slowing down or crushing the advance of civilization. But 
um, people still have, but in the back of their minds, they're like, but is, is CO2 really a problem? Are we, you know, should I be, uh, maybe even though I think there's a huge political agenda on the left, maybe still I should be worried about it. So I want to fast forward to now. I want to talk about your testimony in Congress in a minute, but I want to fast forward to now. You're connected with a group that's called the, uh, or you have some affiliation with the, this organization that promotes CO2. And so I want to understand, it's called the CO2 Coalition. What is, where, where do you stand as, as an ecologist, as a Ph.D. ecologist, on the virtue or value or harm that CO2 brings to the planet? Well, Debbie, I was a founding director and founding member and, and continue to be a director of the CO2 Coalition, along with Will Happer and Dick Linson and the other very prominent and very knowledgeable people from a science perspective. And then there's the whole ex-NASA crowd the, the right climate stuff, they call themselves. They are, they are ex-astronauts retired out of NASA where they couldn't say the things they are saying now because NASA gets over a billion dollars in climate money from the federal government, and you're not allowed to say bad things about that. So uh, they're, they're out now, though, and talking. They're, they're, you know, they're people who designed the International Space Station and stuff like that. And then, then we've just got a whole other mix of people, of academics, uh, people who've worked in industry and are retired and that sort of thing. And uh, we know uh, absolutely for certain that CO2 is the most important food for all life on Earth. That's what everybody has to understand as a counter to this ridiculous idea that a tiny bit of CO2 is going to change the whole world's climate when there is no evidence in history of this being the case. It is true that we live in a time now, which actually began about 300 years ago, of slight warming of the global climate, the modern warm period. It ended the Little Ice Age, which itself came after the medieval warming period, after the Dark Ages cold period, after the Roman warm period, back to the Minoan warm period. These are 1,000-year cycles. Well, 500-year cycles in the sense that there's a 500 years of cooling and 500 years of warming. They're, they're pretty right on. And so most people think they have to do with cycles of the sun or of... Uh, radiation coming in from our galaxy we we our our sun is going through the various arms of the galaxy in a sequence and there's some people who think that has something to do with it we really don't know the dead for sure answer as to why these cycles are occurring but we know for sure that it's not co2 co2 is the food for plants that makes them grow and the other thing most people don't understand is today's world is colder, even in this interglacial period, which is warmer than all the glaciation periods that have occurred through the Pleistocene Ice Age for two and a half to three million years now. We're now into these 100,000-year cycles of glaciation, and we're in the warmer part of the cycle, but it's still colder than it was through most of the history of the Earth. And also, CO2 is lower now than it has been through most of the history of the Earth. When, when life emerged in its great glory in the Cambrian explosion. I mean, there'd been life for three billion years, but it had all been basically bacteria living in the sea. Photosynthesis had evolved, but it was all single-celled creatures in the ocean, pretty much confined to, to where life was. And when life came on the land and then the great flourishing of multicellular organisms occurred with tissues and like large organisms occurred in 540 million years ago is the date that they set as the beginning of the Cambrian explosion of life. At that time, CO2 was 20 times higher in the global atmosphere than it is today. And on balance, since then, 
We don't really know what it was before that with as much accuracy as we do from then. But before that, it was, it was sorry, at that time, it was about 7,500 ppm. It is now 400. When we started pumping this CO2 into the atmosphere, it was down to 280 at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. At the height of the last glaciation, 18,000 years ago, it went to, down to 180 because the cold ocean sucked CO2 out of the atmosphere. The oceans kind of breathe as they warm and cool. They breathe gases, including CO2, because warm water doesn't hold as much gas as cold water does. And so these cycles ha have, have been occurring, and there, there is there's simply no evidence that CO2 is harmful at the present time, but there's ample evidence that more of it would be beneficial because that's what plants evolved in with a much higher level of CO2 than they have today. And so it's been proven without a doubt, and even one side of NASA has published on this, as have scientists around the world, the whole world has benefited from CO2. It's called global greening or the greening of the earth. And the, the cool thing about it is plants not only grow faster and larger when they get more CO2, but they also become more efficient with water. So now trees can live in places that used to be too dry for trees. And shrubs can live in places that were even too dry for shrubs that were just grasslands. So there's a huge change going on in the global environment, and it's all for the positive. Okay, so Dr. Roy, I have to jump in because we have to go to commercial break here. But I'm going to, we come back, I'm going to break down some of those facts because you know a whole lot of stuff, and our listeners are probably can't even keep up with you taking notes. Come back after the break, folks. Let me tell you about the group Vice President Mike Pence called the most effective grassroots pro-life organization in America. It's the Susan B. Anthony List, and they're the ones who are on Capitol Hill right now, day in, day out, to fight back against Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. Every day in our nation, abortion takes more than 2,000 innocent lives, almost two every single minute of every single day. And Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion business in the country, committing one-third of all abortions. It's an unspeakable tragedy and a stain upon our nation and our humanity. And it's up to us to do something about it. This is your opportunity to join the team that's leading the charge to end abortion. Go to sba-list.org or Google Susan B. Anthony List now to learn more and start saving lives today. Do you know that one in nearly five United States residents lives in an immigrant household? That we take in more than one million new legal immigrants every year? Studying the impact of federal immigration program is the mission of the Center for Immigration Studies, the nation's only think tank looking at the broad national effect of immigration policy. Whether it's on crime, welfare, national security, or the job market, CIS digs out information about immigration from government sources, translates it into English, and makes it available to the public, the news media, and policymakers in Washington. Check out its work at CIS.org. CIS makes the case for better enforcement against illegal immigration and lower levels of legal immigration in the future. Most other special interest groups pursue the opposite. The only thing standing between them and open borders is an informed public. Get informed and stay informed by visiting CIS.org. 
That's CIS.org. If there's one thing the conservative movement needs, it's a leader. And we have one, the Heritage Foundation. Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Heritage gets in the trenches on Capitol Hill. They promote principled solutions directly to lawmakers in Washington. And unlike politicians, they don't waver or compromise. But they're not a Washington institution. There are nearly a half million Heritage members and supporters in America. And they're on a mission to grow that number and build the conservative base. You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates from Heritage Foundation on the fight for conservative solutions to America's challenges. Plus, you'll receive exclusive invitations to conservative events where you live. So join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org. America guarantees each eligible adult citizen the right to vote. The Public Interest Legal Foundation, a 501c3 public interest law firm, is dedicated entirely to election integrity, to assuring that voter rolls include names of only citizens eligible to vote, and that protections are in place to prevent voter fraud of all kinds. The Public Interest Legal Foundation discovered that more than 1,000 non-citizens enrolled to vote in Virginia in just eight counties, and in Philadelphia, felons as well as non-citizens are on the voter rolls. Non-citizens have been registering to vote and voting. The Public Interest Legal Foundation is fighting nationwide and in Texas to ensure that only Americans pick American leaders. We are actively litigating high-impact cases to clean up voter rolls and protect the ballot box. If you do not want your vote canceled out, visit publicinterestlegal.org to join us in the fight to restore integrity to American elections. Protect your vote. Visit publicinterestlegal.org today. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. If you're just tuning in, we have online tonight Dr. Patrick Moore, who is a PhD, has a PhD in ecology from ecology from the University of British Columbia. Sir, I have to tell you that people are texting me. I keep my happy little iPad next to me and then doing the show. People are loving this interview and very excited about what you're talking about and, and uh, so impressed with how informed and articulate. I want to break it down just a tiny bit just to make sure this, because I often tell my listeners, you know, you should get talking points, be able to use them. So when Al Gore wrote An Inconvenient Truth, he was arguing in, in you know, in, at least in, in significant part, that the small increase in the percentage of CO2 as in the overall atmosphere due to the burning of fossil fuels and the evil combustion engine was creating a dangerous situation on Earth, the climate change. Uh, he was calling it global warming at the time, and now it's become climate change. But a small percentage increase in CO2 is going to have devastating impact on our Earth. Is that accurate? Yes, it is accurate. It was a complete fraud. Oh, I love that and word. Okay, go ahead. The, the, the primary fraud in his presentation was when he showed a, a graph of temperature and CO2 through the last four glaciation events, approximately 400 years. This, inform- this data was collected from the Vostok ice core, which is an ice core the Russians drilled near the South Pole, and it is able to be analyzed to show in the bubbles what the CO2 concentration was and in the isotope ratio what the temperature was. And this tracks absolutely almost perfectly. CO2 and temperature are up and down, up and down, in lockstep with each other. And he pointed at that and said, look, it's obvious. 
the CO2 is resulting in these temperature swings through time. When those data sets are analyzed, it shows very clearly that CO2 lags temperature by 800 years, approximately on average. So the cause never comes after the effect. The cause always comes before the effect. And so it's very clear that if you're going to say there's a cause-effect relationship here, it's the temperature that is causing the changes in CO2. And there is a very plausible reason for that, because these 100,000-year cycles are one of the Milankovitch cycles, which is the 100,000-year cycle of the change in the Earth's orbit, the ellipt elliptical nature of the Earth's, Earth's orbit around the sun, which changes solar radiation, which would change temperature. There's nothing about the Milankovitch cycles that would cause CO2 to change. So why does temperature cause CO2 to change? Because the oceans heat and cool. And when they cool, they absorb more CO2. That's yep. why it went down to 180 parts per million at the height of the last glaciation and the one before and the one before. It shows it very clearly. And when the oceans warm, coming up quite a few degrees Celsius into these interglacial periods, which are the short times that we're in now, like there'll be a 10,000 year interglacial period and then 80,000 years of cooling into the depths of the glaciation. When, when we come out of the glaciation, CO2 comes out of the ocean because the ocean is warming. Take a cup of a glass of cold water, just plain water out of the fridge and put it on your table and you will see little bubbles forming in it when it warms up. That's the gases coming out because warm water will not hold as much gas as cold water. It's a simple physical reality. And that's the fraud in his presentation, because what he should have said was, look, it's obvious temperature is, is the, what's causing the CO2 to go up and down, not the other way around. That I'm that is just brilliant and so easy to follow, and I so appreciate that. And I want to jump to another point because I always have more um, topics and time on the show. So you alluded to it in our uh, last segment, but to be really clear about this, your organization that you helped found, the CO2 Coalition, and the research behind it is saying that not only is CO2 not a problem, as Al Gore tried to paint it to be, but actually it is the food stuff of, of the planet. And I think you were getting to, to making this point, but because we have had CO2 and uh, it, it somewhat increases in our current time, it's actually contributed to uh, return of some of the um, forests. It's returned to uh, more more abundant crops, more robust crops, which help, um, help with world hunger. I mean, is all that right? Is CO2 really doing that much good for the world? The increase in growth of crops already is in the 20 to 30 percent range. Same with trees. Some trees are growing 40 to 50 percent faster than they did. This is from research forests in Germany and the United States, where they are studying the growth rate in relation to these new CO2 levels. So it's entirely beneficial and will continue to be beneficial far into the future. On the other hand, you know, CO2, as I say, is lower now than it has been through most of the history of life. We are actually restoring a balance to the global carbon cycle. And what people don't understand is all that CO2 that we're putting in the air by burning fossil fuels came from the atmosphere. All those fossil fuels are made of plants. The coal is made from land plants, mostly forests. The oil and gas is made mainly from plankton and coral reefs that lived in ancient seas and so for hundreds of millions of years, dropped to the bottom of the ocean, created the shale deposits that we are now fracking 
for gas and oil. The shale is made of calcium carbonate, which is the shells of those creatures, and, and coral reefs too. Calcium carbonate, carbonate, is made with CO2 and calcium. So those creatures have been sucking CO2 out of the marine environment, which came from the air as well. The only reason there's CO2 in the ocean is because it went into the air from the volcanic activity in the earth, and then the ocean absorbs it because water dissolves gases, including oxygen and, and CO2, and all the, all, pretty well all the gases have a, a certain amount of ability to dissolve in water. So that, that's how the creatures in the sea live, is by using the CO2 that has dissolved in the water. But they, the, the calcifying marine organisms, as they're called, all the shellfish and clams and snails and coral reefs and coccolithophores and foraminifera, which are small creatures, the basis of the food chain, they all calcify and make protective shells for themselves. It's an armor plating. And life learned to do that over 500 million years ago to make armor plating for itself out of calcium carbonate. But unfortunately, that had the knock-on effect of continually reducing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So obviously not as much CO2 is going into the atmosphere for the last 500 million years as has come out of it into deposits in the earth in the form of fossil fuels and carbonaceous rocks. Limestone, marble, and chalk are all carbonaceous rocks and are all of life origin. They weren't made in volcanoes. They were made by life. And about 8% of the entire Earth's crust is made of carbonaceous rocks after these hundreds of millions of years. And so that's what's been sucking the CO2 out. And we, inadvertently, by using fossil fuels for energy, are helping to put it back. So this is not a story of Armageddon. It is a story of salvation, of humans, the only species that could ever have restored a balance to the global carbon cycle. And I know it sounds like, wow, this is real science fiction, but it's not. Yeah. It's true, and I figured it out in this holistic way. About a year and a half or two ago, I gave a lecture to the Global Warming Policy Foundation in October of 2015, where I announced this for the first time. And since then, it has spread quite widely. But the, 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 the mainstream media doesn't want to know about an alternative narrative around CO2. They want to maintain its demonization because it makes headlines and it works in politics and it works in business to get green subsidies to build electric cars and windmills and solar panels. And there's a huge uh, combination of interests, a, a correlation of interests among five key elites, the media, the greens, the scientists who are all taking the government money, like in Nassau, to do all this climate research and tell us how bad it's going to be. The uh, media, Greens, Greens, politicians, uh, politicians, they're into it too. And then the fifth one, I'm trying to remember, but there's five of them anyway. Well, while you're thinking all... about that, first of all, I have to tell you, Dr. Moore, uh, I... I developed a habit in law school. I like to take notes. I like to take down almost everything. Everybody says, I love, you're killing me because I can't possibly keep up with you. I am so thrilled uh, with this interview and with everything you're telling us. We only have about one minute left in this segment. So I want to quickly ask you, right after all these horrible hurricanes happened this year, of course, we had Hurricane Harvey here in Texas, and then we had Hurricane Irma hit Florida, and you hear a lot, in one minute, you hear these environmentalists saying, see, this is what happened. Global climate change is making, is causing more hurricanes and causing them to be more violent. Is that accurate? Well, they'll say about one of them, I forget which one, that it's the worst one in 80 years. What caused the one 80 years ago that was just as bad? <laughs> That's the question you have to ask. 
because it's always the worst thing in 100 years or whatever. Well, there are 100-year events, and they happen on average every 100 years. And the, the, the fact is it's been 12 years, a record since the records were, were kept in, in the late 1800s. It's been 12 years this year since a major hurricane struck the continental United States. So is climate change all of a sudden only a matter in 2017? It wasn't happening in 2016, 2015, 2014, all the way back, right? It just, okay. it, it, <laughs> it's ludicrous that they would blame these things on climate change when in fact there is no uh, plausible mechanism whereby there'd be more hurricanes. But if you look at the actual evidence, this year is not a spectacular year for hurricane activity compared to the year of Katrina or compared to other years going back to Galveston in the early 1900s. Yep, i got to jump in tonight. we got to roll here. Can you quick tell us your website? People can find you. Is it Ecosense? Ecosense.me, and I'm Ecosense now, at Ecosense now on Twitter, and my book's title is Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, and I'm all over the Internet. Thank you so much, Dr. Patrick Moore. Fabulous talking to you. Come right back. Thanks, Debbie. On August 2nd, 2006, Debbie Lee was notified that her son, Mark Allen Lee, had been killed, becoming the first Navy SEAL to lose his life in Iraq. She had no choice about the news that was given to her, but she did have a choice how she responded. In response to her son's amazing last letter, she founded America's Mighty Warriors to honor the sacrifices of our troops, the fallen, and their families by providing programs that improve quality of life, resiliency, and recovery. Whether America's Mighty Warriors is hosting retreats for families of the fallen, helping heroes heal who are struggling with traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder, providing relaxation at the Heroes Hope Home, stepping in when an injustice is committed, or doing random acts of kindness. As Mark mentioned in his letter, they know the price of freedom and who pays it. Our troops and families of the fallen need your support. Visit americasmightywarriors.org today to learn more. That's americasmightywarriors.org. There's a lot of talk today among media, in academia, in our culture, about everything that is supposedly wrong with America. Political correctness tries to dictate that we must stop thinking that America is exceptional. America's bravest have our back in the air, at sea, and on land. But who has America's back in the culture? In schools, on cable television, in newspapers? It's time to end the greatest prejudice on earth, anti-Americanism. And who makes the case for America? Flag does. Flag is the foundation for liberty and American greatness. Flag has America's back on the cultural battlefield. Flag is a nonprofit battle tank working to change the cultural and media narrative about America. If you think it's time to stand up for America, join the Foundation for Liberty and American Greatness. Your support of Flag is an investment in the America your children will inherit. Visit their website at flagusa.org and consider donating. All donations are 100% tax deductible. That's flagusa.org. Attention Ronald Reagan fans, what is the one item most sought after by Americans who love the Gipper? It's Young America's Foundation's Reagan Ranch Calendar. Young America's Foundation is the leading youth outreach organization dedicated to ensuring that increasing numbers of young Americans understand and are inspired by the ideas of individual freedom, a strong national defense, free enterprise, and traditional values. New audiences of young people across the country are introduced to conservative ideas through Young America's Foundation's programs, including the Reagan Ranch Program. 
program. The Reagan Ranch calendar contains spectacular images of the Gipper enjoying his beautiful 688-acre ranch, the Western White House. For a limited time, the calendar is free. Even shipping is free. To receive your beautiful Reagan Ranch calendar from Young America's Foundation, call 800-USA-1776 and mention the phrase Reagan Gift. Again, the number is 1-800-USA-1776 and Reagan Gift is the code. Learn more about Young America's Foundation at www.yaf.org. That's yaf.org. Could you lose your career because of your faith? Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers and, if necessary, legal protection from First Liberty Institute. First Liberty is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America. In fact, First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. They've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to local schools. Visit FirstLiberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans in the workplace, public schools, your church, the military, and more. That's FirstLiberty.org. If you want hope for religious freedom and a free listing of your rights, go to FirstLiberty.org now. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie George Addis. I love talking with you every Sunday night. It's my fastest two hours of my week and funnest. I want to take a moment to thank the sponsor for the show. This is GC Works. They are a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology and deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. Couldn't do it without them. Okay, you probably thought tuning in the show tonight that the first thing I'd want to talk about is the Trump speech at the U.N. I did. So much goes on. It kills me every week to try to hone down the topics I can get to in a short two hours. So earlier this week, um, sadly, I was at a three-hour dentist appointment. You don't even want to know. So anyway, at the end of the dentist appointment, I, my phone had been on mute, and I saw I had all these texts from friends saying, did you hear the Trump speech? Oh, my gosh, this is awesome, awesome. It was great. You can't believe it. And so I have both listened to it now and printed it out. And I want to talk about this speech at Donald Trump Man at the U.N., in terms of, as the show is always about, in terms of establishing, maintaining, upholding the unique greatness of America. And to that end, I'm going to ask Greg to play clip one. It was in the same period, exactly 70 years ago, that the United States developed the Marshall Plan to help restore Europe. Those three beautiful pillars, they're pillars of peace, sovereignty, security, and prosperity. Our success depends on a coalition of strong and independent nations that embrace their sovereignty to promote security, prosperity, and peace for themselves and for the world. In America, we do not seek to impose our way of life on anyone, but rather to let it shine as an example for everyone to watch. Okay, folks, this speech by Donald Trump, it will go down really as one of the finest speeches of his presidency. And I know a lot of you listening uh, think he gave other speeches at various times you didn't like very well or has says things you don't like. But this was a magnificent speech. I'm going to tell you why, among many reasons. I'm going to play a couple of the clips in a moment. But number one, he, Donald Trump, used the word sovereign or sovereignty. 
the idea that you actually have that each individual country is has its government and makes its laws for its people and protects its people that the purpose of government is to have a, a national identity and protect your people the idea of sovereignty he used that word in this speech 21 times 21 times it was a stellar overt strong rebuke to the globalist mentality to the era of Obama and other leftists who happily and joyfully knock and and criticize and denigrate the idea of the unique identity of America and he wasn't just saying American sovereignty he was saying every the world is stronger when every nation has that sense of sovereignty and it was a, it was a direct hit at globalism it was just it was a very very profound speech he also several times encouraged patriotism not just American patriotism, but patriotism by each country, that each country should want to stand up for its people, its country, its interests, that the world is healthiest when every country does that. This is the balance the world creates when every country has a government that is sovereign over its people and is patriotically committed to protecting those people. Uh, you know, he, he, anyway, it, was, it was a stellar speech. Okay, I'm going to quick hit. We're running out of time here. Clip two, if you would, please. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing, and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary I got to tell you, folks, after that speech, within a couple of days, Donald Trump had a comment at another time where he just basically said, you know, I don't know what words he used, but his point was this problem in North Korea fell into Donald Trump's lap because of the failure of previous presidents of the United States of America to stand up for America, to stop this guy. This guy, North Korea, he has nuclear weapons thanks to President Bill Clinton because of a deal when Clinton negotiated a deal with North Koreans and said, don't worry, they're going to use all of this nuclear technology and nuclear uh, information and and, uh, uh, supplies for peaceful means to develop nuclear power. I I mean, and, and... Honestly, at the time, people said, you've got to be crazy. And so this is now, you know, Kim Jong-un threatening the world, now threatening a hydrogen bomb to be exploded over the Pacific Ocean. He's actually made that threat, which would have unknown, devastating impact. And for Donald Trump to be criticized for going on the offense against North Korea, not sitting back like, frankly, Bill Clinton did, most certainly Barack Obama did, and frankly, George Bush didn't do enough. The Republican in there didn't do enough to stand down the threat of North Korea. They have fostered and grown a crazy level of a crazy leader, a crazy level of bravery, and that, you can't, bravery is a positive word I shouldn't use, just just nasty belligerence within North Korea's regime, and this is not weakness. This is not unpresidential for President Trump to take the stand in the U.N. and in his speeches. Otherwise, we are not going to let North Korea bully and destroy the world. I'll tell you more about that in a second. He also identified he actually was willing in this speech to call regimes evil. He used the word evil. 
This is a good thing. It is a good and right thing. Stop the moral equivocation of the last, the moral equivalency of all ideas that is a hallmark of left-wing thinking, a hallmark of Obama's presidency, a hallmark of Hillary Clinton's mentality that every idea... Socialism is just as good as freedom and, you know, North Korea and all these communist countries that were just as good as our our country. This was a fabulous rebuke to the just insanity of arguing the moral equivalency of all countries. Trump was willing to call North Korea and other countries such as Iran evil, called him out and letting him know the world is not going to put up with it. And, sir, now to go to clip three. We cannot let a murderous regime, continue these destabilizing activities while building dangerous missiles, and we cannot abide by an agreement if it provides cover for the eventual construction of a nuclear program. As we talked about, amen to that, as we talked about on this show several times, the Iranian deal was a deal cut. The Iran deal was one of the worst and most one-sided transactions the United States has ever entered into. Frankly, that deal is an embarrassment to the United States, and I don't think you've heard the last of it, believe me. Okay, I am just so grateful that this was again in this Trump, this speech made by President Trump at the United Nations just told the world, told American politicians who've deluded themselves into thinking that the Iranian deal, well, I guess we're stuck with it. It's there. What are we going to do about it? He is putting people on notice that Iran is one of the evil uh, you know, to use Reagan's term, part of the evil empire, the Iranian government, the Iranian is a is a murderous. He talked about their aggressiveness, their funding of terrorism. He talked about their their poor people within Iran who would like to have a return to a peaceful Iran, a more sa- a stable country that they're endangered by their own government. And he talked about the Iranian deal in the way that informed people, military leaders, conservative. Leaders have spoken about the Iranian deal since it was being negotiated. What it was not a deal meant to stop Iranians development, Iran's development of nuclear weapons. It was not meant to do that. It was to enable it. It was to fund, send money, send supplies, make a meaningless inspection uh, provision, which simply allows Iran to keep on developing weapons in areas that we are not permitted to inspect. I mean, it's a, it's a ludicrous deal. And this, the, for President Trump to stand there at the United Nations and say that, it was like a message, America's back. I also want to point out in this speech, this United Nations speech by President Trump, he returned frequently. He actually, he talked about socialism as evil, which it is. It has created misery everywhere it's tried. We have the idiocity, if it were a word, but it's not, the idiocy of American millennial voters getting behind Bernie Sanders because they think socialism is about sharing. It's about being nice. It's about, in fact, we had many of the uh, people, young people who supported Bernie Sanders uh, were thinking that really the misery of needing to wait in line and be missing basic supplies, that it's better for a society if we all share equal misery. They wouldn't mind waiting in line like people do in Venezuela to get basic needs because after all that would prove that they were you know they were caring about the poor they weren't trying to be more elite westerners I mean the craziness that we in this country with the goodness and supply created by freedom are still having a debate about whether or not socialism is a good idea 
This was one of the stellar, stellar things about this speech called socialism evil. And also President Trump returned in this speech three to, uh, many times to his three pillars of peace, sovereignty, security, and prosperity. Sovereignty, I already talked about the idea that instead of this lending more and more of your national power or surrendering your national power to international organizations, to the United Nations, to other segments of the U.N., uh, does it, it destabilizes the world. It weakens America, weakens the world. He just spoke glowingly of sovereignty, also spoke about security. And, you know, this whole notion that we really had under President Obama that we had to have a poorer southern border. We had to let any refugee come to America who wanted to. We couldn't possibly assert our demand for security because that might be mean-spirited. And this is this back to this assertion, we're going to have security. He actually did talk also about the refugees in the speech, about the notion it's far better to keep the refugees in camps and areas near where they're from so they can someday go back to their countries. And the last one was prosperity. And this, again, a direct hit, a direct rebuke on the celebration of socialism, which is where the American left lives today. This notion of somehow shared misery, shared shortages is, is a virtue to be celebrated. He talked about prosperity and how it was lifted people up, the prosperity produced by a America's system had lifted people up. I mean, honestly, goodness, folks, you know, uh, this speech was really, it was Reagan-esque. It was the kind of speech that Reagan would have given. We would have been on our feet cheering. And, you know, I, I tell you, my worst fear after hearing this speech was because the White House has been purging all the conservatives like Rich Higgins, who was, uh, was on the show recently, and other conservatives leaving uh, the um, the uh, the White House, this is a really great thing that um, this speech came out of the White House. I get a tiny bit worried about whether whoever the speechwriter is, I hope he still has a job because this speech was exactly what Trump voters wanted him to say. Come back every week to America Can We Talk. Love talking with you every Sunday. We talk truth about America and why it matters to you. Thank you for listening to America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to AmericaCanWeTalk.org. America Can We Talk, truth about America.